This is Phantom Power. Episode 2 City of Voices. When we reduce the city to a computer, we think that everything can be datafied, everything can be fed through an algorithm. There are actually a lot of really important dimensions, human dimensions in particular, historical dimensions, things that resist datification that don't really fit into that model. So there's a lot about a city that kind of leaks through those algorithms that isn't captured when you equate the entire city with a computational machine. That's Shannon Mattern an associate professor of media studies at the New School in New York City. Thanks for joining us on Phantom Power, a podcast about the sonic arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood, flying solo this episode. Chris Cheek will be back for episode three. Last year, we put this episode online as a preview of the series. So for the couple hundred of you who listened to it, give it another listen. There's a lot going on. Or just check us out again in two weeks when we'll talk to sound artist Brian House. But for everyone else, this episode we talk with Shannon Mattern about her new book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media. A large portion of Mattern's story is about sound, from the echoes of ancient caves to Roman amphitheaters, to telephone wires and radio towers. She shows us how sonic infrastructures allow us to communicate and form communities, cultivating forms of intelligence that are embodied and effective as well as informatic. Before there was the smart city, there was the sonic city, and the sonic city isn't going anywhere soon. If you spend any time looking at architecture or design blogs, or reading tech websites or watching TED Talks, you've probably encountered a couple of truisms about how human beings will live in the future. The future is urban, and the future is smart. Half of the population of the world actually live in cities. By 2050, 70% of the world's population will be living in cities covering less than 2% of the Earth's surface. But cities also give us a lot of challenges. Never have cities been so challenged. Well, many cities are starting to adopt smart technology. Public transportation, IT connectivity, water and power supply, sanitation and solid waste management, efficient urban mobility, e-governance, and citizen participation. And it does this using every buzzword imaginable. Such as the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things. The Internet of Things. And artificial intelligence. And harnessing the power of data. From big data. From multi faceted solution, the smart city. Smart city. Smart city. Smart cities. Everybody talks about being smart. Despite the recent hype, the smart city has been beta testing since the second half of the 20th century. 
after World War II, for instance, there were quite a few organizations and research groups and, and corporations who tried to sell their services and technologies because the War Department didn't need them anymore, the government, the federal government, that is, to cities. So companies like RAND and various government agencies uh, used their computing power and their database methodologies to try to address urban issues. Mattern thinks we should approach the so-called smart city with caution and unearth the history, ideas, and assumptions that form its infrastructure just as much as its servers, routers, and fiber optic cable. And in her new book, she does a kind of urban media archaeology, digging through the strata of media technologies that have always made cities smart. Today, with the ubiquity of computing, and particularly with the presence of computing devices in everybody's pockets and bags, uh, the computer as is a metaphor that tends to be kind of universally applied. And we often use the computer uh, as a metaphor to think about how cities work. And that's not just a metaphor, actually. Um, We are incorporating a lot of computing power, a lot of sensor technologies, a lot of algorithms, a lot of central control rooms to really regulate and monitor uh, urban services and flows. Um, But when we reduce the city to a computer, we think that everything can be datafied, everything can be fed through an algorithm. There are actually a lot of really important dimensions that don't really fit into that model. Again, there are lots of historical, embodied, and also non-human types of things. These are all our co-inhabitants in urban environments too. So these are the things that sometimes leak outside of those algorithmic models. And so your, your book really intervenes in this misperception that intelligence equals informatics, right? There's a, there's a passage where you write, yesterday's cities, even our earliest settlements, were just as smart, although theirs was an intelligence less computational and more material and environmental. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, So when I'm mentioning that cities have always been intelligent, but that the historical forms of intelligence have been perhaps more material or environmental than they are computational, I'm arguing that uh, forms of knowledge, um, even forms of the kinds of things that a, that a computer does today, things like accountancy, administration, that those things have always been performed in cities. In fact, the whole need to account for things, to keep ledgers of things, was something that arose, some historians and archaeologists and anthropologists argue, with the rise of large-scale human settlements. So things like computation, um, uh, logistics, management of resources, again, have always been inherently urban operations and necessities, but they've been taken, they've taken place through often more material media, things like clay tablets, bullae, which were kind of the clay tokens that some theorists, including Denise Schumann Besserach, argues preceded a lot of writing systems. So these these forms, these historical forms of urban intelligence were always there. It's just that they were registered and processed, if we want to use kind of contemporary computational metaphors, on media that um, were more analog than digital. Even the uh, urban environment itself, the facades of buildings, the grid of the street, these forms of these types of things, the environment itself has served as a conduit and a register of a lot of this form of this type of intelligence. Yeah, and and you you use the word uh, logistical, which reminds me of John Durham Peters' recent book, The Marvelous Clouds, right? He mentions that our digital new media 
sort of foreground the logistical role of media once again. So, you know, for our field of media studies, it, it arose during the broadcast era, trying to study radio, film, and TV. But these might really be a sort of deviation in terms of media, right? Where the essential quality of media for somebody like Peters is not the, the sort of transmission of or broadcast of representational information, but it's more about managing our relationship to time and space and, and power. Absolutely. And if you look at, again, a lot of historical media, which were prevalent in cities all throughout history, they serve that purpose. So you had, um, and this might be kind of a liberal definition of what constitutes media, but this comes from kind of my training in media studies from graduate school is taking a kind of a McLuhan-esque informed by his own mentor, Innes, and really being pretty capacious in determining what fits within the basket of, of media. So if you look at statuary, at architecture itself, at um, inscriptions on buildings, which again, stretch our perception of what we might cons count, consider as media technologies today. These were all helping to shape people's experiences, interactions, sync people up with time and space, which is again, that much kind of more fundamental understanding of what function logistics serves. As a student of media ecologist Neil Postman at NYU, Shannon Mattern took her place in the intellectual lineage of Marshall McLuhan, Harold Innes, and others who consider media and mediation as integral parts of the lived environment. When in the late aughts she encountered the emergent field of media archaeology, it gave her a new way to frame her already ongoing studies of media cities. Media archaeology is a field that attempts to understand new and emerging media by examining old and often dead media technologies. Mattern takes inspiration from the field, but notes that most of its digging in the past is metaphorical. What if we took media archaeology literally, she writes, and borrowed a few tricks from archaeologists of the stones and bones variety? Her book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, pushes us in that direction. Each chapter moves us farther back in time in an examination of old urban media infrastructures, starting with the sonic technologies of the telegraph and radio, then moving to the urban emplacement of the printing press, followed by an examination of the earliest surfaces for writing, clay and stone. And finally, perhaps the oldest medium of them all, the human voice. Each of these media reorganized the city around itself, and each of them is still with us today as past and future media mingle in the present. One of Marshall McLuhan's more famous ideas, which I think he sort of cribbed from his student, Walter Jayong, is that voice communication is this more primitive yet holistic form of communication and and he associate tends to associate it with tribes and villages and that sort of thing and then we get this more rational yet alienated print culture that i would assume would allow us to build complex things like cities well one of the things i really like about your book is that it doesn't have these sort of clear-cut stages you know mm -hmm. and and in fact it gives us a way to think about the city as a sonic development and in many ways to think of the city as a space made for voices. 
Right. Uh, so while um, McLuhan and Innes and Ong have all been influential in kind of my foundational study, I think there's been a lot of thinking and scholarship in the years since they did their work that still values the contributions they made, particularly their very liberal interpretation of what constitutes a medium, uh, their idea that media shape environments, um, Innes's idea that even infrastructures and staple goods are cons- constitute communications media. So there's a lot of value in their work. But at the same time, I think scholars have really questioned this idea that history proceeds in various, not necessarily clear-cut, but defined revolutions. So we've kind of realized in since these foundational thinkers did their work that history didn't really happen in in the way, the kind of the periodic way that they presented it. So uh, when we think about our urban histories and how those have been intertwined with our media and communications histories, we also have to recognize that traces and not necessarily historical ruins, but also living, still vibrant um, uh, existences of these quote unquote old media are still present in our contemporary cities. Yeah. I really like this word you used of traces, you know, and and it makes me think of uh, the sound scholar Patrick Feaster. Whom I do not know, I'm afraid. Okay. So so he's a really interesting person and somebody who I think of as a very literal media archaeologist. Um, so in his, in his terminology, he educes uh, the information in old media objects. So, so... Feaster is best known for digitally educing sound from the phonautograph, which was that Mm. 19th century stylus that traced sound waves onto sort of scratchy lines of paper. Uh Um, And he figured out with his partners a a way to uh, digitize that sound and actually turn it into sound, educe sound from this thing that was just supposed to be a visual tracing of sound waves. Um, And then he moved on to do things like use this technique on medieval musical notation, drawing sound out of these pieces of paper. And um, once he said to me, and I think he was half joking, <laughs> that he, he would like to induce acoustic events that had sort of, you know, registered themselves on clay walls millennia ago. Um, but, but I think this word eduction is a good word for the kind of work you're doing um, in this book, because we can't reproduce the sounds of the past, but we can treat the city as a historical medium in itself and try to coax these remnants of forgotten sounds from that medium. So I appreciate that very much. And yes, I like this idea of adduction, which isn't really a word that I use in the book, but now that you've mentioned it, it really does resonate very nicely. And I think that plays out, that methodology kind of unintentionally on my part plays out a few places in the book. Um, Sonic media are one particular 
kind of, I guess you could call it class of media that make it make historical study pretty difficult, especially when you're looking past um, beyond or preceding the time of recorded sound. How do you know what a space sounded like before you had recordings that you could play back on machines today? This is something that sonic historians, the rise of uh, the whole field of sensory history over the past 15 or so years, they have been addressing these methodological issues and particularly the problematics of doing things like recreations or restaging because our contemporary ears that are so you know, ruined by earbuds and the contemporary music, auto-tune, etc. You know, the way we're trained to hear today, we just couldn't possibly imagine the cultural, class, racial, historically defined ways that people heard in these preceding eras. But there is still something to be learned by thinking about our historical environments, not just as visual and material spaces, uh, we don't necessarily have to be limited by the senses that our um, existing historical records leave for us. Even images, tracings in the walls, uh, ruins, archaeological ruins, for instance, still offer, again, traces or echoes of what they might have sounded, how they might have reverberated or resonated in the past. Um, so Emily Thompson wrote a really foundational book in 2002 called The Soundscape of Modernity, where she really has to use things like photographs, catalogs of acoustic materials, textbooks from the kind of the rising field of arch arch architectural acoustics to piece together what these new modernist architectures sounded like. You also have within the field of archaeology, um, uh, I would say maybe a marginalized but still present community of people card archaeo, uh, who are practicing archaeoacoustics who are using somewhat speculative methods, still adopting a lot of media technology. So there's a lot of intersection with what we do in media studies in this field of archaeoacoustics to try to imagine how certain rituals or everyday practices might have functioned as sonic practices in historical or, or, or ancient environments. So testing reverberation patterns, seeing how particular hallways or subterranean spaces might have lent themselves to particular types of acoustic or verbal events or performances. And again, this is speculative, but still it, it opens up kind of a richer, more multisensorial, more performative form of history and um, allows us to recognize kind of different, different types of embodied history, I guess you could say. Yeah, there's there's a really lovely episode of David Hendy's BBC radio series, Noise, A Human History. Yes. With uh -huh. the French scholar Igor Reznikov, who um, you also, also mention in your book. Igor mm -hmm. Reznikov is one of several archaeologists who've tried an intriguing experiment. Moving slowly and in total darkness along the narrower passages of caves like Arsisukur, They've used their voices as a kind of sonar, sending out a pulse of sound, then listening out for any unusually resonant response. He is sort of moving through these caves in France, using his voice to sound out the spaces. And then when he encounters uh, particularly resonant spaces, he'll turn on his flashlight and quite often that's where the cave art will be located, not in the space that would be the most obvious um, visually. Um, in, fa in fact, these off often the cave art is in a pretty inaccessible and strange space from a visual uh, perspective. 
but from a sonic perspective, it's a place where the cave speaks back to you. I'm near the bottom of the main hall, where each sound might provoke up to seven echoes. And looking around, we can see several mammoths, some bears, a rhinoceros or two, some fish, some sort of big cat, and on the floor, the delicate outlines of a bird. Right, absolutely. Um, To understand how some of our oldest media, including things like cave paintings, worked, we have to realize that they were very much embodied performative experiences, that they were kind of training rituals for people to learn the hunt, essentially. Uh, The resonance of the space was combining with the flickering light, which made the cave paintings supposedly look like they were not dancing, but moving, which really kind of reinforced the affective power of that, that whole experience of being of seeing the bison running hearing their footsteps and kind of psyching yourself up to go out for the hunt and so this perspective allows us to start thinking about the city as an outgrowth of that right that there's a sort of embodied and affective intelligence and communication that evolves in and through the city and that um, throughout time we have actually developed spaces um, for verbal and oral communication, as you argue. So Walter Ong thought of ancient Greece as the site where the transition from orality to literacy happened. But, you know, you show in your book that the oral rhetoric and the ancient city were were sort of a co-production, right? Like they literally shaped one another, oral rhetoric and the space of the Roman city, for example, were shaped for and by one another. Right. So if you look at classical um, philosophy, you look at the work of kind of early architects, maybe before they were officially architects, the work of Vitruvius, for instance, um, you can see that acoustics was an integral part of not only the way a city should be designed, uh, but also of um, even these idealistic visions or um, imaginations of what a just ideal city would be. So... um, the city is a space of discourse. The The voice is an integral thing that has to be essentially planned for when we are organizing our cities. The idea that a city shouldn't be so big that you can't hear the voice of a herald standing in the center of the city and calling out to everybody. You need something that's going to unite everybody within an acoustic environment. So there are a lot of these principles that that um, shaped both ideals for the city and actual plans. So you you could look at things like the way an amphitheater was designed, for instance, or the way certain kind of meeting spaces um, in ancient Greece and Rome were were designed, kind of legislative spaces. There were definite acoustic principles that were shaping the materialization of those, those sites. You use this wonderful term. I don't know if this comes from Carolyn Birdsall's book, Nazi Soundscapes or not, but... You talk about this affirmative resonance, right? The the way that sound in a collective space can sort of interpolate us as subjects or group members. Right. I do think that is Carolyn Birdsall's term in regard to Nazi soundscapes. But you could see that that principle applying elsewhere, too. The fact that uh, you could see it today in protest movements around around the world. Um in uh, the sound politics of making noise among marginalized populations, the fact that they're kind of claiming their right to space by creating an ac- acoustic 
envelope for it. So these are still examples of kind of this principle of affirmative resonance. It's enclosing the people who can, who are within earshot as being within a community of some sort. I, I can't help but think about Trump rallies when I'm when I'm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, I mean, what, the, Trump is a sort of master architect of effective spaces. And, and, and sound is, is a big part of what he does. Yeah, so I guess we could say that the, the idea of affirmative resonance is, does not necessarily suit one particular political orientation over another. It's not an inherently kind of democratizing, progressive type of thing. It's not necessarily for radical protest, for instance. It is a method, kind of, I guess you could say, a, a, a socialization method, for lack of a better phrase, that could serve um, multiple political purposes and end goals. Yeah, I think that's very important because, you know, we we get excited about things like the people's microphone in Zuccotti Park and and I mean that's very wonderful, but but these resonances can um have all kinds of uh effects and and you know, it it's definitely not only uh, progressive for sure. Right. So, you know, the Third Reich used that principle very well, too, just as, you know, the the um, liberation movements in the Middle East in around 2011. And as you mentioned, Zuccotti Park. Um, so, yes, it operates for multiple ideologies. I also want to talk about the the radio stuff. Okay. In chapter one, you focus on radio as what you call an ethereal medium. So it, it's a medium that almost supernaturally affects the atmosphere of the city um, with, with sounds and voices that are carried on electromagnetic waves. But at the same time, it's also a heavily material system you know there are as you mentioned there are wires and tubes and transmitters and switches so maybe we could say that this chapter is about radio as a force that reshapes the city both materially and immaterially yeah absolutely Sound, we could say, is a medium without a body. It doesn't really have a material instantiation in the same way that a printed book does or, you know, a carved clay tablet, for instance. Um, so it is ethereal in that way. And particularly if you look at some of the early writing about radio when it first came into existence, it kind of was, a, uh, there was a lot of spiritualized language surrounding it. Um, it was very much connected to kind of the rise of spiritualism uh, with the, the tele uh, some of its even uh, wired predecessors, the telegraph and the telephone as well. Tell my mama to come back home. Won't you do what you can? Cause I'm so lonely. I've been listening to 
seeing every day since he went away. But no words from heaven been heard, can the angels hear me pray when the Sandman is nigh. But these seemingly ethereal media do have, as you said, a lot of very material kind of effects on the landscape. And this is something that sounds like a new revelation in the data age. In the past few years, a lot of theorists and artists and designers have talked about, surprise, the internet is a place, you know, it actually has a material existence. It lives in data centers and cables and satellites, etc. And that was very important for us to recognize because it helps us to rec- to realize the uneven distribution of connectivity. It helps us to recognize there's a political economy and ownership structures to to see the, the internet as a thing with a geography that shapes space and is shaped by geography was, I think, a, a, a very kind of important revelation for us in a digital age to think more critically about our reliance on these seemingly placeless ethereal media. A similar thing was happening in kind of the radio and telegraph and telephone age. These things that were kind of discussed in such romantic, often spiritual language had a very physical architectural impact on the landscape in terms of, again, laying cable, building new architectures, new purpose-built buildings, the rise of new, like some cases, beautiful antennae that really inspired a lot of aesthetic movements at the time. So their traces were very physically present in the landscape too. And this is where we come full circle because you know that ethereal magic we all love today, Wi-Fi and LTE? Yes, that invisible connection that allows us to text our friends and control our thermostats from afar and imagine our data ascending into the cloud just like the angels. That's radio too. Both the hardware and the spiritualism of the smart city show evidence of radio's material and ethereal influence. I mean, also today with our the rise of smart cities and the Internet of Things, the fact that we have these devices that are talking to each other all throughout our cities, supposedly making life much more efficient and allowing us to monitor things like air quality and traffic, etc. We're still relying on radio technologies and a lot of line of sight communication to make that happen. So radio might be used by different devices, but radio, kind of the whole world of radio technology is still super present in our cities today. Shannon Mattern, talking about her book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media, out on Minnesota Press. And this episode was written, edited, and musically scored by me, Mac Haygood. Special thanks to Shannon Mattern and special thanks to Orpheus Scutellis at the New School for his engineering assistance. This episode was produced in conjunction with Mediopolis, a journal of cities and culture. Mediopolis is edited by Brendan Cradell and Erica Stein. The review's editor, who suggested today's interview, is Noelle Griffiths. You can get lots more great content on media and cities at mediopolisjournal.com. Phantom Power is produced by me and my co-host, the poet and media artist, Chris Cheek. And you can get more information at phantompod.org. Phantom Power is made possible through a generous grant from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm -hmm.